Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Transform Sales Podcast, where we talk about the science of selling. Today, I am so excited to have Ben Trombold with me. How are you, Ben? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing great. Let me tell you a little bit about Ben. He is Valentium's VP of Sales and Marketing and the reigning record holder of the most organized inbox in the company. Ben's 10 years of sales and marketing experience began simultaneously with his undergraduate studies at the University of Kansas. He earned a BS in electrical engineering and later an MBA at the University of Nebraska with a concentration in finance and international business. So I'm a former chemist, but I like to tell people I speak engineer. So I'm (laughs) so excited to be chatting with you today. How did you go from an electrical engineering degree to being the reigning champ with most organized inbox leading a team? Yeah. So when I started my career and I went to college when I was in high school, everyone just kind of looked at me and said, hey, you're good at math and science. You should go into engineering, which wasn't terrible advice. But once I kind of started getting into the courses, I enjoyed the challenge and it really was uh, really beneficial for me just from you know learning how to learn. Because in high school, a lot of kids don't learn how to do that. I was definitely one of them. So that was really beneficial. But over time, I realized I just didn't have the same passion for engineering that a lot of my colleagues did. And so I started pursuing, you know, some different opportunities outside of of engineering. And I had a a close connection that had worked for uh, PepsiCo, especially on the bottling side. And so he kind of gave me the rundown on their operations. And it really sounded like something I'd be interested in. They had a really great kind of post-college, you know, manager development type of fast track uh, that really interested me. And just over time, I got really great advice from my advisor in my undergraduate program in engineering. And I went to him and said, man, I'm just not passionate about this stuff like everybody else is. I mean, what should I do? I mean, should I change majors? Should I go into the business school? You know, what kinds of stuff? All these questions I had. And he said, he was like, well, you're getting the grades. And he's like, if you can do that, then, you know, doors are going to open for you with an engineering degree. And so I really took that to heart. Honestly, it was probably the best advice I could get because I ended up applying and receiving, I think, one of two internship positions out of 180 or 200 applicants for the PepsiCo program. And they even noted later that, you know, I was involved in Greek and, you know, some intramurals and things like that. And I also taught on college algebra on on campus for seven semesters. So they really liked that. But then they also really liked the fact that I had an engineering background, which to them, it was just, well, whatever we throw at this guy, he's gonna be able to figure it out anyway. So that really helped me solidify my internship. And then, you know, the internship led to a full-time offer. And so that really just kind of formed the path for my career. And I never really was sure exactly what I wanted to do, but I I knew I was kind of in the right place um, and I was on the right path. And so over time, I, I kind of moved out of you know, PepsiCo from a commodities and consumer goods area um, through financial transactions, software as a service, and then finally got into medical device, uh, which is absolutely where I want to be because I get to work with some of the smartest people in the world from our team and I get to sell their abilities. And it's really kind of an honor to be able to do that. So, and then obviously the devices that we create for companies help change people's lives uh, for the better and, you know, helping paralyzed people walk again and, you know, helping people with with failing memory retention, you know, have the memory retention of a 40 year old and things like that. So it's a really satisfying industry, especially company to work for. So I'm proud to be a part of it. That is amazing. So often I tell, um, you know, people who are going to college, I'm like, college is going to teach you how to think. I use probably... 0.5% of my chemistry degree today. But the fact that, hey, I had to figure out how to solve problems. I had to write these research papers. I had to 
learn research methodologies, like all of those things that I learned, the techniques, maybe not the actual book knowledge, if you will, helped set me up to be successful. And it sounds like they're like, oh, you're an engineer. Engineers are smart. So (laughs) that means that you're going to be able to do this job. Yeah. And it's kind of nice now that this was the first job that I really got to at least leverage a little bit of my engineering background. I mean, I obviously have to talk to engineers uh, in general to be able to scope out projects. And I have to be able to speak their language, at least understand at a high level what they're doing. Uh, we use uh, you know sales and SME type sales structures. So most of the time I have some type of technical resource, but I still need to be able to understand what a microcontroller is you know, just be able to kind of speak the language. And so that's been beneficial as well. And so you started in this uh, management trainee program. Tell us a little bit more about that because those type of programs are like so few and far between these days. They just don't pop up as much Mm -hmm. as they used to. Yeah, and pretty much what I tell everybody is, while, you know, PepsiCo, after a couple of years, I realized it, it maybe wasn't the perfect fit for me. I have all the respect in the world for all the, just experiences I was exposed to within three and a half to four years of my career. I mean, so I, I started off, you know, running a sales route. I had, you know, 60, 65 communities and gas stations. I was responsible for writing orders, selling and promotional material, you know, re-signing contracts. So there, there was a lot of responsibility for someone fresh out of college. So, and honestly, I really enjoyed it because, you know, you weren't stuck in an office, you were out working in your stores, working with your hands, talking with people. So that was when I realized I knew I was, you know, sales, marketing, that kind of an area was kind of where I needed to be. I've always been good at talking with people. Both of my parents were teachers. So, you know, the college lecture part of my undergrad teaching college algebra was an easy fit for me. And so this was just an extension of that. And so I am very thankful for the sales training, understanding branding, marketing, just portfolio management, obviously, you know, how to make sure that a brand is represented properly, you know, whether it's on a shelf, on a display and things like that. And so what was funny is when I left that job and I went to a smaller company, I started realizing that, oh, there's a reason why PepsiCo is, you know, a Fortune 50 company year in and year out because not everyone has all this stuff. And that's when I really started to appreciate. And then I started taking my MBA courses and realizing that, man, these guys really have their stuff figured out. I mean, you know, big company like that, sometimes it's hard to influence change because it just takes time. But just the experience that I had and what I was exposed to and, and the education I picked up from them was invaluable. And so I went from a sales rep and then I, you know, at the age of, I think I maybe was barely 22 or 23 when I got moved into a managerial role, which was the whole point of the program. I managed... I think it was 15 sales reps and then another 25 or 30 people that like, you know, weekend relief, merchandisers and things like that. And I was, you know, managing people that were slightly younger to me to people that were near retirement age and everything in between. So it really kind of opened my eyes to figure out how to manage people, figuring out how everybody's different, what drives people is different. And I did that job for three years and, you know, it was a lot of work, but ultimately it also cemented that I really liked managing people. I liked developing talent and probably what came out of that, I had two sales reps who were you know, fantastic at what they did. And I was able to get them promoted out into managerial positions. And honestly, I still tell people to this day, that was my two biggest accomplishments out of the job. I mean, yeah, we you know sold a lot of product and we're really good at what we did and my team operated really well. But being able to take people from that kind of a job and movement of management who were very deserving, very hardworking, and just very intelligent to make sure they had an opportunity was, was the thing that I kind of hang my hat on from that job and my time at that company. So 
That's amazing because at the ripe old age of 22, a lot of people are barely out of college. If they're late bloomers, they may still be in college. And Mm -hmm. you were already managing a team of almost like 30 people. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about that early, early managerial experience, what are some of the lessons learned that you would say you would give a brand new manager who has this wide generational gap of people that they're reporting to? Well, I mean, as you said, I mean, I have the most organized inbox and there's a reason for that. So when I was at PepsiCo, we only had 250 megabytes of inbox space or we'd get put in quote unquote email jail and we, you know, we couldn't receive anything. So, you know, I got really good at archiving organization, figuring out what was important, what wasn't. And I had to clean up my inbox on a daily basis or else I just wouldn't get communication, which was obviously very influential part of my job. And so I'd say, you know, just organization in general, learning how to condense down information, especially when it comes to your team. That was probably the last lesson I learned is that with a company like PepsiCo, I mean, we were selling brands from Starbucks to, you know, Pepsi to Mountain Dew to, you know, Lipton, I mean, Gatorade, everything in between. And so when you have 10 or 12 priorities on any given week, I finally figured out that if I could break that down to, you know, three very simple to digest, very easy to follow priorities for my team are, it made their job easier. It made them better at their job. It made them less stressed. And ultimately it improved our performance in the market. So that was a big thing was organization and just steady communication. I think one of the things I learned early on was I had leading by example was a big one, you know, cause I mean, I've openly admitted, I was like, I'm going to learn more from you guys in this first year than you're going to learn from me because, you know, I came from convenience and gash. I was managing people who'd been in the grocery business for 10, 20, some of them even 30 years. And so they knew way more than I did. And so I needed to learn from them first. And then once I, you know, kind of established a, a good relationship with them and really kind of took the attitude of they work with me, not for me. I mean, obviously, you know, you have to deal out information and there's some structure there, but, you know, being 22, 23 years old, talking to somebody who's, you know, 50, 55 and has been doing this job longer than you've been alive. You got to take a step back and be humble about it because while you might understand maybe the business side of it, they understand how things actually work. And I would say that was a big part of it. So being organized, making sure to communicate that stuff to my team, being humble in the learning process as well. And then, you know, I was working with companies like Walmart. So walking in there to managers who had a very strong desire to make sure we were executing properly and learning how to communicate things before they came a problem was a big deal and staying in front of things like that. So once they understood if there was a problem coming and they knew about it before it happened, we could at least kind of maneuver around it, which they always preferred because, you know, if something was a day late, you know, they can roll different product out in our spot. If it was something out of our control, I mean, they understood things happened. Now they were never happy about it, but they're still going to be reasonable to a certain extent. And so the communication part is so important. And I've kind of kept that with me for the rest of my career. And that's why I have just a very organized system when it comes to, you know, managing my inbox, using Slack notifications, using Trello boards. And I've been able to pass that on to my team. And what it really does, is it helps me delegate my work so that, you know, my team can continue to work on their projects and I don't need to ping them excessively to be like, you know, what's an update on this project? How is this going? I can just open up the Trello board and look at it. And that's how we do our weekly communication. And so I can do what I need to do personally. My team knows what they're priorities are and they know what they're taking care of at any given point. And I can get updates from them without having to, to bother them on a daily basis. And then, you know, if I have follow up questions, I can always ask those, but I have all my internal meetings on Monday and we set the tone for the week. And then I just let them go because they know what's expected of them. And obviously, you know, hiring the right people helps too, but I've been blessed to be able to have the right people on my team and 
just seems to be going well. And I think just the more organized everyone is and the more you communicate, it's just the more efficiently you're going to work. So. So all of what you said, that is your engineer coming out. And that is how the engineer in you has uh-huh. taken, you know, hey, we use the project management tool. And uh, I think Trello is Kai. That's exactly what it uh-huh. is. And so I'm going to use that and I'm going to break things down. I'm going to say, hey, these are the expectations. This is when I need it to be done. And hey, team, this is what you need to be successful. Mm-hmm. So in order for you to be successful, I'm giving you the tools. I'm giving you mm-hmm. the support. And when you need help, come to me. So how did you go from that? Hey, I'm a young manager. I have all these things. I think I have it figured out. Now I'm in startup lane and going throughout your career. What allowed you to be able to just release and not micromanage your team? Yeah, I mean, that was, I think, I think I was kind of forced to in the, in my job with Pepsi is because, you know, I mean, they're all working in stores, right? So I had my two furthest reps were, you know, driving there between their quote unquote routes were probably two, two and a half hours apart. So I physically couldn't micromanage them. It was impossible. So, you know, over time, I mean, I'd say after the first year, I mean, you learn your team's tendencies, learn their personalities, you learn what they're good at, you know, what they're not good at, what you need to you know coach them on. But I mean, like I said, I was, I was blessed with a pretty good team. I mean, as a manager, you're only as good as the people that work for you. So, um, you know, and I think a big thing for that was we had this thing at Pepsi where if, you know, whether I sold in, you know, a, a big display in a store, whether my rep did, one of the things that we would do is we would always, you know, I would go with them to help build it. I would make mm-hmm. sure you were following up our brand flow, all of our brand strategies. You know, there's a little bit of, you know, sweat equity or make sweat equity there, making sure that, you know, we're just as involved as they are. And then what we would do is, you know, we'd take pictures of it, make sure everything looked perfect. And then I would, you know, send those up the chain to my boss. And then, you know, my boss would send it up his, depending on how good the execution was. And my name was never on it, right? It was always, you know, my rep's name because they're the ones that sold it. It's their accounts they're the ones maintaining it. And obviously, you know, I would get, you know, props by proxy, right? I mean, everyone, everyone hires like, well, who manages him? And then who manages him? And so it, it was kind of those things where if your team looks good, then you as a manager are going to look good and you don't need to shine the spotlight on yourself. And that was a culture thing at Pepsi that was really interesting and really eye-opening and a really good lesson for me to learn at a young age. And I think as I started working at smaller and smaller companies, that experience from Pepsi and understanding like, hey, they've got what they, you know, they called it the you know, Pepsi way of selling or, or something like that. And, you know, it's kind of, you know, might be a little cheesy with how they organize everything in the process. But at its core, what I realized is over time that, I mean, one of the big things was like overcoming objections. And it wasn't just trying to force somebody to buy something. It was understanding, okay, you don't want to buy this but what are the reasons so that I know in the future what is actually going to appeal to you and what and what's not? I mean, people might want to generate more revenue. They might want to have a more healthy pad their their margin of their bottom line. Um, they might only like certain products because they know what their customers buy and you know everything in between. And so, being able to take that to you know especially startups. I mean, those are the foundations of you know how to sell to your customer, how to you know where does your brand actually have impact. I mean. Um, it's always easier to relate back to Pepsi because, you know, in in rural areas, Mountain Dew was king, right? In city areas, Diet Pepsi was. So uh, just understanding how distinct some of those markets can be um, was really good. And then as I started moving into startups, um, I think when I started getting confidence out of those jobs at Pepsi, managing teams, um, I kind of would bounce back bet- back and forth between, you know, being an individual contributor, managing a team, being an individual contributor, managing a team. Because I really liked both, uh, but 
really taking those lessons from early on and applying them to the smaller companies, you know, and especially, you know, being as driven that helps and then being hyper-organized just so you can work as efficiently as possible. I think that taking that to smaller companies, especially where, you know, you're one of 40 versus one of 250,000 can stand out a little bit more. Uh, and so that was, and then just repeating those. I mean, getting my MBA was, was exceptionally helpful too, especially from a business perspective. I really wanted to round out my engineering background with some finance and some business background too. And now that I'm, you know, the most senior person with sales and marketing, my title of Lentium, you know, I can talk to, you know, P&Ls, I can talk to budgets. It just kind of expands that breadth of knowledge that I'm able to, you know, relay to the co-founders of our company, which is who I report to. And so they're not asking me questions of, What's our sales process look like? They're going, you know, they're asking about forecasting. They're asking about, you know, how is our contract language helping cover our blind side when it comes to these kinds of issues uh, when we execute projects and things like that. And so there's a, it's a lot more business related stuff rather than day-to-day -day execution, which is, you know, different from what I was doing earlier on, but it's definitely where I want to be, so. You know, a lot of times as people are climbing that ladder, you go from being individual contributor to being, I call it like a people manager. So as a sales manager, and then you're, you move up into a director or VP level and where you are is you're no longer managing people, you're managing teams. And so you can't be so deep into the weeds, like knowing every deal that's going to close, right? Mm -hmm. You need to know from a strategic standpoint, Hey, I see that in this part of the country, we're always losing here. Why is that? Right. And those are the type of things that you as a leader, right? It's a very different thing being a manager mm -hmm. and being a leader that you have to really dig into. So I know that you got your MBA, but other than your MBA, how did you make that mind shift from I'm not managing people? I'm not, well, I don't want to say you're not managing people. I'm sorry. You're not managing individual projects. You're not really looking mm -hmm. at which individual project close, you're more looking at strategy. How can we mm -hmm. position ourselves? What are some things that you did to get there? Honestly, I think it kind of starts with, I think every manager, especially early on, has the realization that you can't do everything anymore. It's mm -hmm. physically not possible. And I think I learned that early. Now, you know, it's something I think you kind of relearn as you change jobs. But when I first came on, I was, you know, creating processes that were scalable so that as we wanted to grow and we would hire more salespeople, those processes would be in place, you know, managing a CRM, making sure we had a, you know, a great estimate writing template for between our, our sales team. Cause I was operate, I was working with operational people. You know, we have technical directors at our company since it's a consulting company. And then, you know, proposal templates, making sure they're easily navigatable, making sure the boilerplate text is accurate and things like that. So really for me, it was early on, I was still selling individually, but I was prepping the groundwork so that when we started needing to hire people, their orientation would be pretty short and sweet. And be like, here's all the tools that I have made for you. You know, obviously I'm going to help train you on them and we're going to have some some back and forth and make sure that you understand how they work. And and one of the big things I always tell them is, look, I'm here to work with you. I, I mean, they report to me, yes, but I want to understand what you feel like you're wasting your time on, right? Is there a process that feels cumbersome in the CRM? Is there something that you're doing every single week that could be automated, right? And we have automated workflows that help, you know, create tasks for them so that they're not having to double log a lot of things, um, you know, and we've got things that log emails and things that log notes automatically for meetings and things like that. So my whole goal is to make sure that my team is spending as much time as possible on the things that actually make them successful in their job rather than wasting their time with, you know, super manual expense reports and, you know, all the non-fun stuff that comes with what we do. And that trickles down to my marketing team as well. I have 
two great individuals that are on my team that, to be quite honest, I've been able to hand over a lot of things. I mean, I still manage and, and look over their shoulder from time to time is, but they take projects all the way to, you know, 90% and then they send it to me and say, you know, what do you think about this? And I think that over time we've been able to agree upon, you know, what our brand strategy is, what we are, how we are trying to grow the company. So they know where my priorities are. And so when they pursue things like that and then bring it to me, most of the time they're dead on and I just have to provide, you know, just little, little bits of piece and feedback. I'm kind of a stickler for, you know, grammar and language and things like that, which I'm sure is not surprising to anybody. <laughs> um, <laughs> but with, you know, my hyper organization and attention to detail, but I mean, from a, a holistic point of view and from a brand strategy perspective, they're always, you know, dead on or at least really close. So there's really minor input for me. And I think that trust has built up over the last year to where I really don't think about what they're doing on a day-to-day -day basis. We talk for an hour, hour and a half once a week, and I understand what their priorities are. And, you know, I, I will sometimes say like, hey, make sure, you know, A, B, and C really get focused on this week and I know they'll take care of it. And so that's, I think good managers are able to let go because they trust the people they work for. And if there's people that work for you that you can't trust, then as a manager, you need to understand it's like, hey, is this a coaching opportunity? Is this uh, one thing we have here is called, we call it right person, right seat. So are they the right person to work for the company or be on your team? Or are they just, you know, maybe in the wrong job or are they, do they just not fit in with your company strategy or with your team strategy and how you like to manage? And so I also think that, you know, in the last two years of COVID, it's, People can't micromanage anymore because, I mean, no one's really working working in the office anymore, at least from from a majority perspective. So I think managers are being forced to, if that was your style, you have to change because employees now don't want to work in an office. So you've got to be able to manage your teams remotely. And I think delegation and trust and training is even more important than it was before because you can't just look over their shoulder and be like, so what are you working on today? right? Mm -hmm. It's not that easy anymore, which I personally, I think is a good thing. I like it from a managerial perspective. I like it from an individual perspective, treat people like adults. And I think you'll be rewarded. I mean, people want to succeed and they want the tools to be able to succeed. And that's always kind of been something that I focused on is like I said, I want them doing what they do best and not wasting their time on manual processes that don't provide any value, you know, like expense reports and, you know, logging things in a CRM, like information is important, but I don't want them to be wasting time putting it together. So, right. Spend your brain power, spend your energy doing the things that matter. Right. So just pulling a call report in the CRM or making 25 calls. Like, I don't really care about that. That doesn't matter to me. <laughs> if you make 25 calls, you make five calls. Your objective is to schedule this many demos, this many discovery mm -hmm. meetings. Like that's what I'm looking for. I always talk about the conversions. It's always in the conversions. It's not the raw numbers, but the activities that you're doing exactly. is all about the conversions. And so when you think about, about how many people do you have on your team now? So right now, let's see, when I started, so our company has been going through some pretty significant growth. I think it was three years ago, I was employee, three and a half years ago, I was employee number 40, 45, somewhere in there. I and mean, now we're at about 120 to 130. So I've got two people on the marketing side, and then I've got two salespeople on my team now. As of this month, uh, we just hired another one. So we're still a pretty small team. It's not as big as it was at Pepsi, but I mean, also at the same time, our average deal size can, you know, get up to this, you know, the seven digit mark. So we're not doing fast pennies. We're doing, you know, sometimes it's, you know, might be a slightly faster nickel, but it's a lot of bigger end project, multi-million dollar projects. So our sales cycle can go anywhere from two weeks to, and I'm not joking about this, four years. Um, so uh, we work with a lot of startups, work with a lot of big companies, you know, startups have to obtain VC funding. And so we'll do a lot of work ahead of time to make sure that they have 
all the information they need from an estimation, from a timeline, from a scoping perspective so that they can go raise money. And so we'll put together proposals for them um, and they'll use those proposals to you know, entice and VC investment funds to say, like, look, we have an engineering team that's ready to go. This is how long they believe it'll take us to go from our starting point to our end point, whatever that may be. And they're willing to do it for roughly this amount of work. You know, I mean, it always can kind of depend as, you know, if it takes too long, you know, we have to revise those things. They're only good for, you know, so many months, right? But it can be a shorter, a long sales cycle. And so there's a lot of detail, a lot of conversations, a lot of technical discussions. And so smaller teams in the beginning are really helpful. But, you know, I have every indication that that team will probably be two times larger this time next year. So, and that was part of what I was talking about earlier is making sure we have a scalable sales and marketing system that can work as we add people on. And the biggest compliment I've ever received, and I've you know said this to the company, I've said it to people on my marketing team, our, our newest sales edition, he came to me and said, he's like, I have never worked at a company where I was given so many leads for free. Just, they, <laughs> he's like, they just come in, they, wow. just, they just come in, they get dropped in his lap, that's a tribute to my marketing team. We work with a really great third-party marketing firm on Revenue River here in Denver, Colorado. They've been really helpful from a CRM implementation standpoint, from an SEO, from a paid media perspective. We have a PR firm based out of Houston, Texas called Pierpont Communications. They've been fantastic. So we've cast a really wide net and we've figured out what works. And then we, we double down on things that continue to produce results. I mean, when I showed up, trade shows, the only way we could get leads. And due to COVID, you know, trade shows have kind of fallen off a little bit. We've still gone because I think brand awareness is an important thing in our industry. But now trade shows are, are generating the least amount of leads for us. Um, now they still generate a good amount. And, and you know, we're kind of coming out of this the pandemic. So I'm optimistic that that will jump back up. But we had to go from a completely in-person lead gen marketing strategy to a completely virtual one and we did it quick we had to do it really quickly and so i think that pivot was extremely influential in us to be able to create a marketing engine that generates leads when we're not even working and now i've got more leads than i know what to do with so uh we're actually getting to the point where we're starting to, have to be a little bit more picky with the projects we choose and things like that which is a great problem to have so and so one thing that you said that i really like that a lot of companies i would say that are in your stage of growth they really don't get is your ratio right now to salespeople is probably 60 40 but it really was 50 50 sales to marketing yeah. right like you're investing as much in your marketing which helps the inbound lead flow so salespeople can be salespeople like salespeople don't need to be out there prospecting that hard they don't need to be spending that much time on linkedin and doing this and doing that what they really need to focus on is selling. And mm -hmm. then you've also said, I'm working with this firm in Denver, this firm in Houston, this firm here, that firm there, right? And it's like, I get that one firm can't do it all. I get that we need some external help. And so what you've done for your salespeople, like the person said, like I have so many leads. And when a salesperson comes to a company and they literally are walking into a seat where they say, I have leads, I just have to figure out how to develop, how to qualify, how to walk them through the sales mm -hmm. process. That helps them become stronger mm -hmm. and helps them ramp quicker. Absolutely. And the way I've always kind of described it is, is I view marketing as, you know, marketing's job is to bring in, you know, qualified leads, right? So that if your salespeople, all they're doing is going to the well over and over again and going like, all right, I've got, you know, I've got free time. Cause like I said, our, our sales cycle is a little bit longer. Proposals sometimes can take up to four hours to write, depending on how big they are. We might have, you know, three to four hours of technical discussions and then spend one to two hours putting together an estimate. And then we might have to revise that thing three or four times. So since our sales process is so long, we don't need, you know, I don't need 
20, 30 leads coming in every day. But if you can get me, I mean, if I get five to 10 qualified leads on any given month, I'm going to be very busy that month. My calendar is going to be extremely full because we have cycles with individual customers. Because once we decide we're a good fit, we can do what they need. You know, we understand what their budget and their timeline is. The real, the real work begins and that we have to understand exactly what they need from a technical perspective, from a project perspective, how, you know, how much do they have to spend? What's their timeline look like? Because a lot of these startups only have one shot to do it. I mean, you go to a VC firm, they give you, you know, however much money you need. One, they never give it to you all up front. So you have to break everything up in a phased approach, which we're, we're very good at navigating that. But then also they have one shot to do it. I mean, we've seen very successful startups that have nailed the entire process and go through five, six, seven years of clinical trials, have great results. And then a slight mismanagement of money actually caused them to, I mean, have to cease operations. And I think they've been picked up since then, but they had a very promising product. They had people that were using their device and having great results, but they, I think they just set up their clinical trial a little bit wrong and that was it. And so it, we take that responsibility very seriously. And so we try to be as detailed and as prudent as possible when we go through that process. So, but yeah, from a lead perspective, I view our marketing team, if they can generate more leads than our sales team knows what to do with or can handle, that's great. And then from a sales perspective, I just want, I mean, myself, obviously I'm kind of mixed between both and creating processes and managing my team and then also selling myself. But for the people who are strictly sales, I want nothing for them other than, hey, if you're not on a call with a customer, I hope you're, you know, maybe you're doing some legal review, um, you know, passing around an MNDA to make sure we can have a discussion, reviewing notes and writing up, you know, working with our technical team to come up with a technical estimate, or you're doing the early stages of a proposal or, you know, something in between, right? I don't want them having to, to cold call anybody because cold calling works in some industries. I don't think it works too well. I mean, how many times do you get a phone call that says, hey, do you want to spend $3 million with us as a company? That that cold call is pretty hard to sell. So versus buying, you know, $25, $50 you know, software or widget, right? So I've done that, you know, to be frankly, I probably wasn't very good at it. That's why I didn't like it. Um, but yeah, it's, I think ultimately, you know, marketing is there to generate quality leads. Sales is there to act on them. And then also what I think is important is, you know, making sure that sales and marketing, while they can be separate, I think having them report up to the same person is absolutely vital because the second you have, whether it's a chief marketing officer and a chief revenue officer, I mean, they have competing priorities, but if they eventually all report to the same person, I think that's beneficial. And then I have to give some credit to my CEO, Dan Purvis. He is a huge believer in marketing. I mean, the amount of times that he talked about, you know, Google AdWords and SEO and things like that when I first came on and it took us some time to, you know, get the budget and to get the strategy around that. But he's a firm believer in marketing. And I think, you know, there's a time for, you know, the old school sales selling and relationship selling and things like that. but the same time, brand awareness and being able to generate leads from, you know, quote unquote, nothing, right? That just kind of seemed to appear, you know, organic lead generation. I mean, that just gives you so much confidence that, you know, not only is your company being recognized in the industry, people are seeking you out through word of mouth, you know, through speaking engagements. We do a lot of those, whether they're in-person virtual webinars, you know, podcasts like this one. And, you know, our CEO has been on, you know, local news. We did a lot of, we've done some mini docs on the, some ventilator work we did during COVID and just everything in between. And I don't think there's any really one place you can pinpoint like that piece is generating all of our leads, but I think it's all just a full body of work that you can say that, hey, our, our PR firm got us this great speaking engagement or, 
you know, our SEO is really pulling in a lot of organic leads or, Hey, our paid media is starting to, you know, our click through rate. I think the average is 1%. I think ours is around four to 5% right now. So mm. we, it's just a, a summation of all the parts rather than just one thing that's really working for us. And that's been a big, a big part of my strategy. You go to a trade show, it's not just sitting in the booth. It's making sure somebody's speaking and driving traffic to your booth. It's, you know, making sure your salespeople are emailing people and trying to set up meetings and dinners and stuff like that. And so it's a collection of the parts, not just one individual thing. And I always think that's important um, that people understand. So I think that especially in an industry that is so focused on what used to work and in this time of COVID, it's like things changed and they were still trying to do it the old way. Or maybe they're like, okay, we're going to start to cold call. But as you said, it's not necessarily putting it all on sales. It's like you're marketing. And so when I I'm, I tell people I'm not a marketer, but I can help you with your marketing strategy because if your marketing strategy is not driving sales then we're doing something wrong, right? Yep. We're just doing, and there's just an exercise to make everybody feel warm and fuzzy. So within your organization, it seems like you've solved a lot of different, a lot of things, right? You have process, you have people, you have inbound leads. What are some of the things that you're still as a leader, like, man, I really got it. Figure that out. How am I going to get over this hump? Yeah. I mean, I think the one thing that we're trying to address right now is so we're really good at, you know, I mean, obviously captivating new people coming to our company. I mean, we, I'll be honest, we present extremely well. Our co-founders, our, our C-suite team, our CEO, Dan Purvis, our COO, Tim Carroll. What I think is amazing about what they were able to build is they built a $10 million company with almost no marketing. It was all just on personal reputation, which is the opposite. I think if you went to any startup and said, hey, you're not gonna have to spend really much money on marketing, but you're gonna be able to grow, you know, a multi-million dollar company in revenue, they'd be like, you're crazy. With And, and before I showed up, I was the first salesperson that they hired. Um, mm. And that was, they founded in 2012. I started in 2000, late 2018. So um, now granted, they were all kind of chipping in and doing selling, but I think that just speaks to the, just the quality of people that they are. And quite frankly, I mean, I, I thoroughly enjoy working working with them. And that's actually who I stole that quote from is when I when I started I, in my interview process, I said something about working for them. They said, well, let's correct the record right now. You do not work for us. You work with us. And so I've tried to apply that to my team. But I think from our perspective, I think we do an excellent job. I mean, we have extremely smart engineers our technical directors, we have an SME over every single technical area that we do from a medical device uh, development perspective. You know, we have a great sales process. Um, we've got a lot of great templates that really help automate and move that process through as quick as possible. So we're interacting with our customers more rather than spending time on internal processes. I think the next step that we really have, the next big opportunity we have is trying to increase our interaction from a sales perspective with our existing clients. And so one thing we're working on is trying to obtain feedback, not only from a, a sales cycle. So if we bring in a brand new client and say, Hey, how was your interaction with the sale, with you know, your sales manager? How was your interaction with the technical directors? Were they, did it feel like, you know, they were really trying to get to the bottom of what you're trying to do? You know, how did you feel the estimate discussions were? How did you feel the proposal? You know, how did you feel about the terms? You know, just all the all of the initial kind of impressions that they can have with our company. But then also at the same time, we're trying to create an automated kind of structure that will obtain feedback. You know, once a project, if a project closes, you know, and six months later throughout the, the process to get feedback, at least from our project manager's perspective, you know, how, how are the projects going? What, you know, what's going well, what's not going well. So not only is it a operational feedback mechanism, but also from a sales perspective, it helps us be completely honest when we're selling too. And that's, 
I think that's a big part is I never want to sell an idea or a process to a client that either we're not executing well or um, that we don't know needs improving, right? Mm -hmm. So I think as a salesperson, we kind of have the responsibility of being as honest as possible when it comes to sales process. And I mean, here at Valentium, nobody from a sales perspective is commissioned. So um, we operate as a team. We don't have divisions. I mean, at any given point, the bigger the project, the more people's hands are going to be on it. So somebody that works on my team, I might, you know, they might do the introductory conversations. They might bring in, you know, a couple different technical directors. They might bring me in to help with an estimate or proposal creation or just, you know, reviewing and things like that. And so we don't want the focus to be distracted by, well, who gets the ultimate commission from this? How do we split it up and and whatnot? It's just, you know, hey, we're all working together. And obviously, again, we do slow quarters, you know, bigger dollars, but we're not selling, you know, super fast deals, which is kind of how that works out. And since it's a more involved process, it does work. But yeah, I would say obtaining feedback because now we have the systems in place to be able to do that. And now that we're not, I'm not just focusing all my time on individually selling, I'm able to step back and look at our department and our process as a whole. That's just been a great mechanism for us to be able to understand what do our customers think of our process and how is it going um, and kind of getting that feedback. So That's awesome. I always say, you know, there's two different ways that we can build the business. New customers or more business from our existing customers. And what we really have to tap into is what I like to call the voice of the customer. So why did they choose us? What was their experience? What did we do right? What did we do wrong? Like all of those things are so important for us to really understand, hey, how can we get more of this, right? How can we make this process maybe a little faster, a little bit smoother? And you know, when you can be introspective and say, hey, these things are working really well, but here's a room for opportunity growth that is really how we as leaders continue to build and develop. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that's kind of helping me with that is I'm, I serve on an, I butchered the formal title, but I think it's, it's an advisory board at the University of Colorado in Boulder. They have a specific course under customer experience. So mm. that's what and I'm, I literally have to take the course since I'm on the council and I don't get officially inundated <laughs> until I finish the course. But yeah, that's been extremely helpful and just understanding, I mean, we're, cause we're at the basics, right? And there's people in there that their literal title is like, you know, chief customer experience officer. And so they are very in tune with things like that. And I'm like, well, we're just trying to get a feedback loop. We're not, uh, <laughs> we don't have any metrics. I just want to hear what people have to say. And so kind of what ties into that. And one thing we've always tried to do is, you know, obtain testimonials from clients and things like that. So we always kind of dabbled with it, but now that we're growing and, um, I have more people on my team that have more, you know, bandwidth for tasks like this. It just kind of enables us to be able to obtain that feedback. So I'm really excited because what I tell my team is we're almost done building the foundations and now we're just going to improve our execution versus before it was like, hey, you know, we need a better CRM. We need a better automated process. We need, you know, better workflows and things like that. And now it's like, all right, we have the foundations. Now the fun stuff really starts to happen because now we're perfecting instead of building from scratch, which is obviously preferable because the scratch stuff can be frustrating sometimes. This has been such an amazing and enlightening conversation. Really thinking about you starting out as an engineer, working, doing grunt work at Pepsi, building a team, getting people promoted, and then taking all of what you have into really building this organization that, I mean, anyone should be proud of. I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation with you, Ben. I have too, and I have to give all the credit. I mean, Mar, 
Dan and Tim from the beginning, you know, believed in me and gave me an opportunity. I mean, as a fresh MBA grad and true to their word, they said, Hey, look, we're not going to micromanage. Like, this is your thing. Like in my interview process, I sat up on a whiteboard for eight hours and I told them all the things that I thought they were doing wrong. And they took the feedback and, you know, they were perfectly honest and we have a great, you know, working relationship. And I mean, they're just, they're just great people to work, to work with, not work for. Right. And so They've been true to their word in all of this. And I think that's indicative of why our company has been so successful is, you know, even leadership at the top has been phenomenal and they've given this opportunity and I'm glad I was, I'm glad I was able to run with it. So it's honestly been kind of like what I wanted to do from when I started my career and I've always been grateful for the opportunity. So. Awesome. Well, Ben, if people want to get in contact with you, what is the one best way that they can do that? I mean, as I said, my email is really organized. I think uh, that's probably the fastest way. I don't answer my phone unless I know the phone number. But uh, yeah, I mean, my email is just ben.trombled at valentium.com. So that's V-E-L-E-N-T-I-U-M. Sounds like a made up element, but I assure you it's not. So um, yeah, if I get any type of email, I'm open to talk about any specific processes or, you know, if they're just, you know, pick my brain or if they just have some general questions, I'm, I'm happy to answer it. I've, I've always loved the mentoring side of things. And that's, you know, tied into, you know, the teaching in college, I coached basketball for a long time. And I'm always open to things like that. So happy to help out people whenever I can. Awesome. Well, again, Ben, thank you so much for sharing your experience with us and helping us to learn how to better transform our sales. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. And that was another episode of the Transform Sales Podcast. Remember, in all that you do, think about how science applies to selling and mash them together to build a strong sales team and organization. Until next time.